excuse me, there was when he was not. This is a slogan, this was a slogan of a man named Arius. Arius was a theologian who lived in the third and fourth century. In these early years of the church, there was a lot of debate about who Jesus was. And there were two distinct trends, two different perspectives about who Jesus was. On one side, there were those who believed that Jesus always was, that he was eternal. These early theologians captured this with the phrase, the eternal generation of the Son. The purpose of this phrase was to affirm, of course, that Jesus is the Son and that he is God. It's to declare that Christ's sonship goes all the way back into the being of God. That the Son is a part of the divine being or essence. Jesus is of one essence with the Father. Although different, different persons, they are equal. Jesus is God. You have that on one side. On the other hand, on the other side, there were those who believed that Jesus had a beginning, a starting place. Men like Arius believed that Jesus was created. Arius claimed there was when he was not. In other words, there was a time when the Son of God didn't exist. This, of course, meant that Jesus was an inferior being and that he was not essentially God. The setting of this debate was, of course, the Roman Empire. In 312 AD, a man named Constantine pulled off a stunning military victory and took possession of the western half of the Roman Empire. His stunning military victory was the defeat of Maxentius at the Battle of the Milvine Bridge. Constantine defeated Maxentius's army and drowned him in the Tiber River. You might know that Constantine attributed this victory to the god of Christianity. And following this victory, he and the ruler of the eastern half of the Roman Empire, Lucinius, issued what's come to us today as the Edict of Milan. This edict or declaration proclaimed that, quote, the Christians and all others should have liberty to follow that mode of religion which to each of them appeared best. All who choose Christianity are to be permitted freely and absolutely to remain in it and not to be disturbed in any way. This was particularly, particularly important as the previous ruler, Diocletian, led what's called, what history has called, the Great Persecution. The church historian Eusebius tells us about this dark hour of the church. He asks somewhat rhetorically, Why need we mention the rest by name or the number of multitude of the men or picture the various sufferings of the admirable martyrs of Christ? Answering his own question. Some of them are slain with the axe. The limbs of some were broken. Some raised on high by the feet with their heads down while a gentle fire burns beneath them were suffocated by smoke which arose from the burning wood. Others were mutilated by cutting off their noses, ears, and hands and cutting to pieces the other members and parts of their bodies. Why need we revive the recollection of those in Antioch who were roasted on grates, not so as to kill them, but so as to subject them to lingering punishment? Again, this is the great persecution under Diocletian. Some, shrinking from the trial rather than be taken and fall into the hands of their enemies, threw themselves from lofty houses, considering death prefer preferable to the cruelty of the impious. Thus, the Edict of Milan symbolized a dramatic transition in, from the darkest hour of persecution to, we might say, the brightest hour of imperial support. It's within this setting... That's a, that this raging debate about the deity of Christ emerged. And this debate eventually grew to threaten Constantine's plans to unify the empire. So he decided to call the bishops, these are the elders of the church, the leaders in the church. He called them together to settle the debate once and for all. This gathering is what we call the Council of Nicaea. Maybe you've heard about that meeting, the Council of Nicaea. Nicaea was a town in modern-day Turkey, and Constantine had a palace there. 
He had a big house. And so he invited all the church leaders to come to his house and figure it out. You guys settle this once and for all because it's causing problems in my empire. So let's figure it out. And so two to three hundred bishops attended that meeting. The bishop of Rome, which would eventually be the pope, Alexander, he was there. Athanasius was there. Maybe you've heard his name before. And, of course, Arius was there. Now keep in mind, the setting is important, at least in your head as you think about what this all looked like, that these bishops had survived the great persecution. One author says, one of them could not use his hands because red-hot irons had destroyed the nerves. Others had had their eyes dug out or arms cut off. The church historian Theodore writes, in short, the council looked like an assembled army of martyrs. After Constantine opens with his speech, Constantine urged the group to come to an agreement on the nature of the sun. And they did come to an agreement after about a month's time. They gathered, they stayed, they debated this issue for a month, and they came to an agreement. And as a result of that Council of Nicaea, the Nicene Creed was developed. Maybe you've heard of that as well. That's what came out of that meeting, the Nicene Creed. Arguably, the most important sentence of that creed claimed that Jesus was, quote, of the, of the substance of the Father, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Now, if that's the most important sentence, then the word consubstantial is the most important word in that sentence. At least it's the word that had the most debate around it. In the Greek, it's homoousios. There's a lot of debate about that word with Arius and the other men. And that word means of the same substance. Jesus is homoousios. He is of the same substance as the Father. It was this term, again, that Arian and his followers, followers couldn't agree upon. Now, interestingly, the council sided so strongly against Arius and the Arians, and so strongly on the side of Scripture, that they added a conclusion to the creed that actually says, quote, the church condemns those who say there was when he was not. They condemned the slogan. In the end, Constantine banished Arius from the empire, and the Council of Nicaea struck a great victory for the deity of Christ. Now, as much as we might have hoped that this Nicene Declaration would, ha would set the record straight throughout history, we know that it has not set the record straight. In the centuries that followed Nicaea, the allegorical approach to Bible interpretation, the, right of, the rise of modern philosophers, especially Hegel and others in the Enlightenment period, have given us many perspectives on the deity of Christ. Many perspectives on the deity of Christ. Today, we can pick from many different perspectives. We have Barth's dialectical Christ. We have Boltman's mythological Christ. Paul Tillich's existential Christ. Carl Rayner's transcendental Christ. Moltmann's messianic Christ. Pannenberg's universal Christ. Norman Krauss's disciples Christ. And of course, John Hicks' universalist Christ. And this... These options don't even really scratch the surface because you also have contextual Christology. You have those who talk about process Christology or a process Christ, a feminist Christology, a black Christology, a Latin American-influenced Christ as liberator, an African Christ as ancestor, an Asian-influenced Christ as universal savior. The associate professor of Fuller Theological Seminary, closes his textbook on Christology, speaking about the development of these different perspectives on Christ, and he says, quote, we do not want to suppress plurality for the simple reason that the Bible, the foundational source of all Christian theology, embraces a variety of approaches to who Christ is and what he has done. There is no easy way, he says, no miracle solution Doing Christian Christology, I don't know what other kind of Christology you would do, apparently we're going to do Christian Christology, 
is a global intercultural exercise transcending ecclesiastical and theological boundaries. The end result is not one Christology, but a variety, he says, of rich voices. In 1966, what's that, 70 years ago? Carl Henry, the man who helped to establish that seminary and who was the first editor of Christianity Today, he had another take. He suggests a central problem and a central solution. The central problem, Carl Henry says, of the New Testament studies today is to delineate Jesus. Who is Jesus? Without dissolving him, he says, without demeaning him, without reconstructing him, as 19th century historicism did, so that it becomes clear why and how he, that is Jesus, is decisive to our faith. Is it true that the Bible, the foundational source of all Christian theology, embraces a variety of approaches to who Christ is and what he has done? Carl Henry doesn't think so, and friends, I don't think so. And neither did the Nicene Church Fathers. They didn't think so. And when we talk about, today it's popular to talk about all these different contexts, those men were in a vastly different context than our context. And they were from vastly different places. Athanasius was an African. He was a black man. You had Europeans. You had Asians. All these people came together not to talk about cultural context, but to talk about what? What the Bible says. That's what they did. Their perspective, their conclusion was not based on philosophy. It wasn't based on perspectives. It wasn't based on tradition or anything else. It was based solely, I believe, on the Word of God, as it ought to have been. And what does the Word of God reveal about Jesus Christ? Was He a benevolent prophet? Was He an inspirational leader? Was He a created being, as Arius said? Most certainly not. He was none of these because the Bible says he is the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact imprint, image of his nature, Hebrews 1.3. He is God incarnate. He is, as the Nicene Creed declares, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance, homoousius, being of one substance with the Father. Amen? This morning, in our passage of Scripture from John 8, we're going to see Jesus himself make such a claim. And so, if you would, as is our habit and pattern here at Rosedale Bible Church, please stand for the reading of God's Word, and we'll read John 8, verses 48 through 59. John 8, 48. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see de- taste, excuse me, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Why do you make your, who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, 
you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. As we begin to study this text, the first section here we'll call the harsh insult of the darkness. The harsh insult of the darkness. This insult isn't the first in this section. It comes to us in the, in the middle of this larger dialogue that we've been studying between Jesus and the Jews. To review, Jesus is standing with these Jews in the temple treasury, and the Feast of Tabernacles is, has just concluded or is getting, getting towards the end. It's the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, so people are, are leaving this great feast. Recall it was there in that temple treasury where Jesus is, where these 70-foot-tall 70 uh, uh, candelabras stand. And so he, he's under these giant candelabras when he says in chapter 8, verse 12... I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And it was this statement that pricked the Jews. It led into the discussion that we've been studying now, again, for three weeks. If you can capture what Jesus is trying to do here, it's, it's simply to give testimony to who he is and to help these Jews see who he truly is, which is, as he's declared, the light of the world. Other verses are significant. In verse 24, Jesus says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe, he says, that I am he, you will die in your sins. Last week, we studied verse 31. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. As we've studied these verses, we've discovered that the Jews are not buying what Jesus is selling. They're pushing against him basically at every point through this discussion. They're struggling with Jesus. Verse 13, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true, they say to him. You need further evidence. We don't believe you. In verse 19, where is your father? Which, of course, is kind of a veiled insult. We know where our fa- who our father is, which they're going to say in a little bit here. Where's your father? We've heard there's some confusion about where you came from. You possibly born out of wedlock? Verse 25. Who are you? There is a glimmer of hope in verse 30, as we saw last week. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. They believed, and yet, as we saw, they didn't believe. They weren't willing to to really follow what Jesus said. And so they become unbelievers almost immediately. As this crucial conversation between the Jews and Jesus heats up, the Jews accuse Jesus of being illegitimate. Again, where they said, where is your father? Well, they, they strengthen that finally in verse 41, and they say, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. We're legitimate. You're illegitimate. We're pure. You're impure, is what they're saying. Jesus, on his part, he doesn't back down. Being the very embodiment of truth, he speaks the truth to the Jews. And he's been alluding at this, this, this truth throughout this discussion about they serve their father. He serves the father. They serve their father. Well, who is this father? Their father. Well, he kind of comes clean finally in verse 44. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. All of this, background brings us to the harsh insult of the darkness which comes to us in verse 48 the jews answered him are we not right in saying that you are a samaritan and have a demon apparently there's some kind of standing accusation that jesus was a samaritan we know that the jews hated the samaritans they viewed them as physically and spiritual half-breeds to review The Samaritans were the the descendants of the Jews who remained in the northern kingdom after the Assyrian defeat. The Assyrians came in and they took the northern kingdom and they took some of those people back to Assyria and then in turn they took some Assyrians and put them back in the land of Israel. 
and those Jews that married those Assyrians became the Samaritans. During the intertestamental period, that is the period between um, Micah, um, Malachi, excuse me, Malachi and Matthew, that 400-year period right there, the animosity between this group grew and grew and grew and grew. And so when we open up the page of Scripture to Matthew, we have this great animosity between these two people. Now, Jesus, of course, takes no part in that. We already studied John 4, and we saw Jesus actually go to that Samaritan woman and speak to her. And the whole village in Samaria believes in Jesus. Jesus takes no part in this animosity between these two groups. Now, to call Jesus a Samaritan is is to call him a false teacher and a traitor. It's their way of saying he's an enemy of God. That's what they're saying in calling him a Samaritan. And, of course, they don't stop there. They also say that he has a demon. He has a demon. This accusation has been thrown at Jesus before in chapter 7, verse 20, and it will be thrown at him again in chapter 10, verse 20. Not the first time he's encountered this. As demon, demon possession it leads to irrational behavior, you remember the man that broke the chains or the boy that was foaming at the mouth and convulsing on the ground that Jesus healed, so, it, so Jesus is irrational is what they're saying. He's insane. You have a demon. Now, how is Jesus going to respond to this accusation? Well, you remember the words of 1 Peter 2.23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. So Jesus responds in verse 49. I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Jesus responds here by affirming that his actions are as far away from demon possession as possible. His practice is to honor the Father. And these Jews do the opposite by dishonoring him. That being said, Jesus isn't concerned that the Jews give him glory. That's not his primary concern. Because he doesn't seek his own glory, furthermore. Jesus doesn't have to seek his own glory because God is looking after that. God will take care of that business. Jesus isn't here to pursue those things. God, in the end, will sort it out. God the Father is seeking out the glory that people bestow. He will know, he will come to find out who we honor. Who, do we tri- who or what do we attribute honor to? Whatever, whoever that is, God will figure that out. He will sort that out. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what Peter actually says in that verse I just quoted from, 1 Peter 2.23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I came to seek and save the lost. I came to preach truth that you might believe in me. The free offer is to you. If you don't want to honor me, God will sort that out. Is essentially what Jesus is saying. He will judge justly. I don't need to be concerned with that. Jesus entrusted himself to the Father and knows that the Father will sort out to whom people attribute glory, to whom they honor. For he is the judge. There's a sense in which we say, we might say, what people think about Jesus is immaterial. It doesn't matter. Why? Because God's approval is everything. He is the judge. Paul alludes to this in some ways in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 when he's talking about his ministry. He says, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. It doesn't matter what you think about me, essentially. I have a crass way of saying it. In fact, I do not even judge myself, he says, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord, he says, who judges me. He's saying, I have a clean conscience before you. The Lord will sort it out. So Jesus is saying, the Lord will sort this out in the end. So we have this harsh insult from the darkness. In verse 51, Jesus moves a step closer to his boldest claim. 
And we see here the bold revelation of the light, the bold revelation of the light in verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he says, he will never see death. Although these men are reviling him, even blaspheming him, to say that he has a demon, what does Jesus do? He offers salvation. It's a universal offer. He says, anyone, anyone keeps my word. Reminds us of John 3, 16. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This opens the door to all sinners of the world. The door is open to every man, even those who accuse Jesus of being a demon. The offer stands. Anyone who keeps my word, he says. Jesus says, anyone, whoever keeps his word will never see death. To keep his word is to remain in his word. You remember last week, remember that verse 31, if you abide in my word, if you hold fast to my word, if you continue in my word, is what he's saying there. The similar idea, although Jesus does use a different word here. Jesus loves this word keep. He uses it a lot. The picture of the verb is to keep an eye out. Keep an eye out on the word so that it's not tampered or violated. That's what it means to keep his word. The English word keep gives us the sense of holding on to it, which is correct. That's right. But the Greek has the added idea of guarding over the word. And so we should trust the word. We should obey the word. But we should also guard it. Keep watch over it. There's the, the, that sense is in this word. The sense comes out in the instruction Paul gives to elders in Titus 1.9. He says, an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Why? So that he may give instruction in sound doctrine, positively give instruction in sound doctrine and do what? The guarding idea comes through here. Also rebuke those who contradict it. So an elder is to hold fast to that word so he can positively explain it and then maybe defensively or negatively, he can defend it over here against those who contradict it. That's the idea of keeping his word. Both senses are there. Finally, he says, anyone who keeps his word will never see death. The death is emphatic here. Death, he says, and then he uses the strongest negative possible. Death, he will never, ever see. He'll never see death. I was thinking about Becky this week and hoping that she could stand on the top of Mount Whitney one day with her bypass. And I, and I thought, you know, if Becky stands on the top of Mount Whitney, I don't care how hard she looks, she'll never see the ocean. You'll never see the ocean from Mount Whitney. Well, the same is true here. You'll ne- we will never see death for those who keep his word. If we keep his word, we will never, ever see death. Now, how do the Jews respond to this bold revelation? Well, the Jews respond to this bold revelation in verses 52 and 53. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death, never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Seems they believe they have the upper hand here. Now we know you have a demon. You say you have the power to deliver from death? Abraham died. The prophets all died. Who are you? Who do you make yourself out to be? Of course, the truth is that these men have completely missed the point. They can't hear these words from Jesus. Verse 43, earlier, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Jesus is speaking the word, the language of deity. And they can't hear that language. They don't understand. Why don't they understand? Well, again, verse 44, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. They're of Satan. Remember 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 
And these men don't have that spirit. They can't hear Jesus' words. Matthew eleven twenty five. 25, I thank you, Father, Jesus says, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. What is revealed to little children is hidden from the most religious men. No matter how simple and plain, the truth of Scripture is a mystery until God grants us understanding. That's why it says in verse 47, whoever, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. There's a powerful mystery in that verse. Totally unflustered, Jesus responds. And it's here we see the bold authority of the light, the bold authority of the light, verse 54. Jesus answered, he kind of steps over this Abraham issue for the moment. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. Jesus wants to make it clear there's no self-glorification. Importantly, again, he returns to the idea of glory or honor. He says, it is my Father who glorifies my, me. Now, why is that important? Well, as we've said, all honor comes from God. It takes no work at all to rightly, to, to think highly of ourselves. Neither is it hard for us to promote ourselves, to pat ourselves on the back. That's easy. That's natural. That's normal. But real glory Real honor is the glory that, glory that eternity can reveal. That's what Jesus is saying. Time is the great equalizer to man's glory. We're all temporal. Whatever glory we think we possess, time will prove we have no glory. That's why Jesus can say all glory is to be discounted. Self-glory, excuse me, is to be self-discounted. If I, glory, glory, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. And Jesus needs glory. He needs glory from, from them. He neither needs glory from them, excuse me, nor does he need to pursue self-glory. Because the glory he receives comes from God the Father. And God is eternal. That's the only glory that matters. Jesus continues in verse 55. But you have not known him... I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Here's the foundation of Jesus' life. Jesus has a unique knowledge of God. I know him. Jesus uses two different words here for knowledge when he says, but you have not known him, I know him. He uses two different words here. You don't realize, he's saying to them, you don't realize who God is. You don't have the intuitive knowledge needed to know him. But Jesus says, I know him, saying, I have an experiential knowledge of him. I've experienced who God is. That's the kind of knowledge I have of God. You don't have that kind of knowledge. For the Jews, this means that their God was really a character of God. It was something they propped up in their mind. They imagined who God was. But they didn't actually know who God was. They never experienced Him. They didn't have that kind of knowledge of God. The implications are profound. If Jesus has such knowledge, then it's Him, in Him. It's in His person that we can actually see God what God looks like because he has this unique knowledge of who God is. Barclay said, with our own minds, we can reach fragments of knowledge about God. It's kind of like what they did. This unique, the, just fragments of who God is. Reaching out there and trying to put the pieces together. Who is this God? Only in Jesus Christ is the full orb of truth. For only in him do we see what God is like. This is what, I, this is how I take John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. 
So if we want to know what the creator of the universe is like, we don't have to look any further than Jesus to see what he is like, who he is. Something, that, something else that captures this foundation of Jesus' life is Jesus has a unique obedience to God. He doesn't only say that he knows him, but he says he keeps his word, which is what he commanded us to do. So we have this perfect model in Jesus. We know exactly what Jesus means when he commands us to keep his word. Because we have Jesus who kept the Father's word perfectly. So, this means we can look at Jesus and say, this is how God wants me to live. We have a model. How to deal with others. How to treat people. How to love people. How to talk to people. How to respond to evil. Did Jesus hate evil? Was Jesus angry about evil? He was. We ought to be angry about that. Did Jesus love sinners? Did he offer forgiveness? All these things are true and so much more. Jesus is our model. Verse 55 teaches us that in Jesus alone we see what God wants us to know and what God wants us to be. The bold authority of the light gets turned up a notch. The, the light is getting brighter throughout this text. And the, the, we, we reach kind of another notch in verse 56. Jesus returns to the subject of Abraham. The father Abraham, your father Abraham rejoiced, he said, that he would see my day. Jesus says, he saw it and was glad. He saw it and was glad. This is a striking statement. This is a contrast here between Abraham and the opponents of Jesus. They rejected him, but their father right? They're claiming him as their father. Their father actually accepted him. Even more, he rejoiced to see Jesus. Now, the natural question when you read this is, well, when did he do that? On what occasion? How in the world did that happen? You can imagine there's a lot of ink about that written, and there is. One way to take this is to think that maybe Abraham was in heaven looking down at Jesus's ministry and rejoicing that while Jesus walked the earth Abraham was in heaven and he was looking down at Jesus and he was like yeah good job he rejoiced that he sees Jesus's day maybe that's what he means the problem with this interpretation of course is if you know anything about grammar Jesus uses the past tense and so that interpretation is, is, is a challenge to us. We have to get around the actual verb tense that Jesus uses. He says, I re he rejoiced, he says, that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So, what does it mean that Abraham saw Jesus' day? I think there's a clue in Hebrews 11. This is where I would go to explain this. Hebrews 11 gives us a clue. If you remember that chapter of Scripture, there's what we call the Hall of Faith. It teaches us, <clears throat> excuse me, in that chapter, it teaches us that um, the allegiance or the commitment of God's people through history was demonstrated by faith. People like Ab Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham. It talks about Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11. And it says there, these, these faithful ones, all died in faith, not having received the things promised... But it says, interestingly, having seen them and greeted, greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Abraham didn't obtain the messianic promise. He didn't, see, he didn't have it in full. However, he saw it and he greeted it. Which I take to mean he rejoiced over it. He welcomed it. When did he do that? Well seems like Hebrews chapter 11 talks about the birth of Abraham's son, Isaac. And so, the fulfillment of God's promise to give him a son, in that, Abraham saw a glimpse of God's ultimate promise to send a Messiah. Abraham didn't see the Messiah, but, 
But through the birth of Isaac, Abraham could see Messiah's day. So there's a sense in which he saw it and he rejoiced over it. The birth of Isaac was so miraculous that in it, he saw Jesus and he rejoiced. And if you think about Jesus making that statement, it's a pretty amazing statement that Jesus would make that claim. He's saying, I'm the fulfillment of Isaac. I'm that person that's promised. What's the point? Well, Jesus identifies the ultimate fulfillment of Abraham's joy with his person and his work. Your father saw me. Your father, Abraham, he saw me, my person, and he exulted. He rejoiced. He was overjoyed. When he, when he held Isaac, how old was Abraham? Imagine to hold that baby. God has a deliverer. He will redeem his people one day. How is this possible that I hold this baby? It would be impossible, but God. So Abraham saw that day, and he was overjoyed. He was glad to see it, is what Jesus is saying. I wish the Jews would have responded differently to that. Verse 57. Remember, they they don't understand the language. They can't see it. What does it say? So the Jews said to him, You're not 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? You're a young man. You're in the prime of your life. You're not even to retirement age. And you've seen Abraham? Finally, Jesus gives us what I've called the light's boldest claim in verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus says, I am, and this in contrast to Abraham who was. To say I am is to say there never was a time in which Jesus came into being. Neither will will there be a time in which he is not in being. We can never say of Jesus, he was. We must always say of him, he is. And if we must always say he is, then church, what must we always call him? Lord, our God. Obviously, Jesus isn't saying that he, the human figure Jesus, always existed. We know that Jesus was born on a particular day and in a particular place, Bethlehem. We know that. Jesus is saying something else. There's one person in all the universe who can claim to be timeless. Who is that? If there's one person who can claim to be above and beyond time, who can say, I am? Only God can say that. Jesus is saying that his life is the life of God. He is saying that in him, eternity has broken into the time of man. Barclay again. In in Jesus we see not simply a man who came and lived and died. In Jesus we see the timeless God who was the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob who was before time and will be after time, who always is. In Jesus, the eternal God showed himself to men. And what of the response from the Jews? They pick up stones. They try to kill him. The sense there is passive in that, although it's translated differently. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself. The sense is really that he was hid. Somebody hit him. We know that it wasn't Jesus' time. His hour had not come. Whether miraculous or other, I don't know. But Jesus escapes as the rocks come after him. Lots of 
people take this. I'm not sure it's an, if it's an over-interpretation, but it's interesting here that Jesus is talking about glory, and you have this picture of God leaving the temple. What's that Ichabod without glory? Remember in the Old Testament, the glory left the temple. And so now we have a transition in the book of John where God is, his glory is being removed from his people, from the Jews, from the temple like it was in the Old Testament. And now Jesus is going to go out outside and tell others. Of course, he's been telling others. But the, there's going to be a kind of a transition in the book to Gentiles and to others. I don't know if that's valid or not, but it is interesting that Jesus in this context is talking about glory and then he leaves the temple, Ichabod, without glory, which is an idiomatic kind of way in the Hebrew. It's almost a question. Where is your glory? The answer is, it's gone. It's not here. He's left the temple. So, was the council of Nicaea right to reject the slogan, there was when he was not. Were they right to reject that? Yes, I think they were. They were right to reject that. Were they right to affirm that Jesus was God of God, is, I should say, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father? Yes. Yet, as right as that statement is, church, it has to mean more to us than just a, a tenet of faith, words on a page, a doctrine. It has to mean more to us than that. We need to think about Jesus and relate to Jesus in the full light of the truth of who he is. The absolute reality of all that Jesus is. I don't know how to do that, but we have to pursue that as much as possible. Here's a profound reality, a profound truth. The truth of his identity is the solution, I believe, to the biggest questions of this life. Questions like, how did we get here? What is the meaning of life? This is the answer. Because if that's true of Jesus, then just like Jesus says, I speak the truth. And the truth will do what? Will set you free. When we reflect on the reality of this life, there's no greater comfort than the reality that there's something out there Church, there's something out there that didn't come into being. It always was. And that thing has the, the answers, again, like I always say, to life's biggest questions. Whatever question you have about life, whatever you're struggling with, he always was. So go to him. He knows. If there's something out there that was more than first, but always, then there's a chance that there's meaning in this life, that you have a purpose. And there might, might just be an explanation for how we got here. In the beginning of the last book of the Bible, God tells us, Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. God says that. Alpha and Omega, you may know. If you've paid attention in Greek class. That's A and Z, right? That's what he's getting at. It's the first and the last letter of the Greek al alphabet. There's nothing before Alpha, and there's nothing after Omega. So it is with God. And so it is with reality. There's nothing before God and there's nothing after God. There is, he is there, no matter how far back you go. And no matter how far forward you go, he is there. God is absolute reality. At the end of the book of the Bible, last book of the Bible, 
Jesus tells us, Revelation 22, God says it first, Jesus says it at the end, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. John Piper has written, quote, Jesus Christ is the creator of the universe. Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Jesus Christ, the person, never had a beginning. He has absolute reality. He has the unparalleled honor and unique glory of being there first and always. He never came into being. He was eternally begotten. The Father has eternally enjoyed the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint or image of his nature in the person of his Son. What we need to understand is that seeing and savoring, savoring this glory is the goal of our salvation. That's what we're created for. It's to see who He is in all of His wonderful glory. To acknowledge Him. To accept that the words that we have here are that person's words. And then to keep them. To abide by them. To hold them to live our lives in light of them. Jesus said in John 17, 24, Jesus prays to the Father. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you give me, you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. Jesus' desire is that we would be with him. Why? To see his glory. Play board games? No. I know that in our finiteness, in our hum humanity, it's hard to grasp what that looks like and what that is, but that's okay. We'll know. And it will be the most joy-filled experience ever. Beyond anything we could ever imagine in this life. To accept the light's boldest claim, before Abraham was, I am, is the very aim of our being. This is why God created us, to, to hear those words and then to believe them, to take them in. The answer to life's biggest questions, the pathway to everlasting joy, both in the future and today, is to accept this claim. And so we pray. May God grant us the ability to see and to savor Jesus Christ as God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Amen.